Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Paul, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for the invite to to the podcast, Will. Absolutely, sir. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on. I really quite appreciate it. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. In, in terms of bio, I'm uh, originally from Germany. I um, I did high school there in, uh, and graduated just when the global financial crisis broke out. I uh, originally wanted to be a lawyer and, and study law, but in the final and, and, and then do do um, finance in, in the political sphere eventually but in my final two years of high school the global financial crisis broke out i was interning in the finance committee of the german bundestag uh, at the oh, time wow. when um, institutions like hyper real estate um, fell off a cliff and and starting started taking other big institutions with it and um, people slowly realized that we might be facing a big event here, um, a, a generational event. And politicians, policymakers, people from, you know, the, the ECB, other institutions, uh, they rushed to, to find some sort of blueprint what to do in a major global tail event like the financial crisis. And it turned out there is nothing like a blueprint um, because we assumed that there would be no more financial crisis in the world, um, that um, markets are efficient and risk uh, can basically be allocated away uh, between um, market participants. And around the same time, Ken and Carmen uh, Reinhardt's book on eight centuries of financial folly came out. And uh, to me, it was a revelatory moment in many ways because i thought this is the way to study finance and economics and policy making it through the historical lens and through the realization that there's more than just model building or or physical equations to economics we are dealing with with chaotic systems with humans in the end who are emotional and History is the best um, laboratory to study these these chaotic processes over time. Um, and so uh, I really became strongly convinced that I wanted to do economic history, financial history with a, with a strong applied angle to, to very much uh, focus on the um, on the market side, on the on the um, trading but also on the policy making side eventually to to provide better answers for for the practical world in other words um and i i um decided to to go on a longer academic journey and do financial history and economic history and um, i started that at lse and then continued it uh, at harvard um and um, now i'm here at yale uh, doing 
writing a book uh, for Yale University Press on my dissertation and on long run trends and in, in interest rates. And that's, that's the, uh, that's the um, short version of it, I guess. I love that. And, you know, Paul, I really like your approach because it seems like, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, opinion analysts and even, even scholars, you know, when they talk about, you know, the great stagnation, secular stagnation, they all look at this like super small sample size, right? It's like, well, the last like 50 years, what happened since 1971? But right. I, what I liked about your approach, what I found fresh was like, okay, let's take a much bigger, bigger sample size. What's, what have the eight, last 800 years been like? And what does the trend look like? And let's try and uh, figure out what's going on there. Um, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about what you've found looking at interest rates over the last 800 years? Yeah, absolutely. So um, during my time, during my PhD studies, uh, I was uh, seconded to the Bank of England for a couple of years. Um, and was again, it was, it was a great experience because it was again, a very applied slash policy oriented environment. And of course, the big question then, as well as now, was um, from a policymaking perspective, what are we doing uh, about the key measure in the global financial system, uh, namely the interest rate? Um, and why is it behaving in such weird ways? Why is it behaving contrary to everything that we find in textbooks and in, in financial uh, uh, literature and um, models? Because you know, all the reference literature tells us something very different to what we are seeing, not, not, not just since the financial crisis, but for a longer time. So there was a big puzzle here. It puzzled market uh, people as well, people in investment banks and in, in hedge funds, etc. Um, and, and, you know, people who, who invest um, in pension funds, who invest for the long term, for instance. So it has a massive, not just a policy, but massive market relevance um, that question now i'm not uh, i'm not so original as a financial historian per se for wanting to take a longer look than than uh, the mainstream econ literature so my advisor at lse um, steve broadberry he constructed gdp series uh, starting in the 13th century for england for instance and i got exposed to these approaches in my undergraduate years um, the thing is, nothing like this exists for um, capital for the capital market side. So we have an increasingly good understanding um, for some of the macro variables, including including output growth, including uh, living standards, i.e., per capita uh, GDP. Uh, Angus Madison; these people have done uh, tremendous advances over the years, but not so much in capital markets. In fact. Our reference work for interest rates um, is six decades old. Um, oh, wow. it's Homer and Silla's History of Interest Rates, which first came out in 1963. Um, and, um, you know, we had several updates um, and, and Dick Silla came in at a, at a later stage and, and did a tremendous job. Um, uh, however, for a lot of purposes, um, it doesn't really cut it. So our, our reference literature um, on the capital market side is, um, I would say, deeply deficient and, and unsatisfactory. So that's where I saw a niche and that's where I saw a great applied relevance and, 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 um, and a chance to demonstrate the, uh, 
the value of applied history um, to answer you know the secular stagnation questions in a, in a much more satisfying way i would argue um, but also have a big relevance to to the practical to market market people and um, policy making yeah. got it got it and can you talk a little bit about what you found it, it so I want to summarize what, what I read in the paper. It's something like over the last 800 years, we've had this long run trend downward of interest rates, you know, intersecting with zero right about now, maybe a little bit before, maybe a little bit after. Um, is that, that a correct understanding? So there are two streams of, of literature, I would, I would say, that, that I try to reply to. So one is a, a more abstract finance literature that has looked at the statistical properties of interest rates and and the the general um dynamic behavior of interest rates um i.e is the interest rate a stable uh variable over time gotcha. is it a random walk is it um you know subject to certain regime changes where the the mean shifts around now that sounds very abstract, but it's it's of big relevance for asset pricing uh, in, in a very fundamental way. Because if you say uh, the interest rate is a random walk, but other variables like growth um, or consumption are clearly not a random walk, um, then a lot of the asset pricing models have a problem when they assume uh, higher growth means higher interest rates, okay? So gotcha. it has a big impact for these stylized facts that, that people operate with uh, on a daily basis in markets and in, 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 in finance. So that was one uh, stream of the literature that I wanted to, to address over the long run. Nobody had ever done more than a couple of decades of data on that front. And the other one is, is really, um, uh, is really the, the econ financial history literature. I mentioned Homer and Silla and apply a new comprehensive empirical investigation to to secular stagnation to uh, the the zero lower bound literature all these all these uh, questions about okay the, the the key tenant here is that if you talk about secular trends and secular stagnation namely then i think it's it's deeply problematic to look at four or five decades of data okay uh secular stagnation secular trends in the economy by definition per se uh, they try to make general statements about the economy they try to uncover the structural glacial movements in the economy that's 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 the the secular um component here and so i think it's it's um uh it's quite pointless to base these kind of thesis on four or five decades of data, because then you're capturing maybe one cycle of these secular uh, glacial movements in the economy and financial markets. Okay, um, but that's not a secular picture that you have. You have one one uh, cycle of the secular way the economy behaves. So that called, in my view, for a long run reconstruction of global real interest rates. Which, which I then did on the basis of both published data in, in existing secondary works, uh, in existing printed primary sources, as the historian calls it, i.e. registries from, from um, 
early treasuries uh, in France, in Germany, in, in the urban centers where the big merchant banks were, were based, like the Fuggers in Augsburg. And, and um, so it turns out with a bit of patience, uh, you can uncover a lot of material even without going into archives uh, and, and really looking at dusty old files uh, and trying to decipher uh, 14th or 15th century uh, Latin. Um, that is the, the uh, icing on the cake, uh, I would say, which, which I also try to do to the best extent possible, which is completely lacking in, in, the, in, in works like Homer and Silla. They never went into archives and, and tried to get primary sources. So you asked about the, the results here. The big result is that global real interest rates have actually fallen for over five centuries in a consistent cross-country, cross-asset uh, fashion. Um, and the idea that something happened in the 1970s or 1980s that initiated a trend fall in the global real rate is quite misleading uh, because the real interest rate, the global real interest rate has never been stable prior to the 1970s or 80s. Uh, there's no natural level of the global real rate say somewhere between three and five percent and once we figure out what happened in the 70s and 80s we can go back to that sort of level this is an implicit or often explicit uh, assumption that, that people make in the debates no the global real rate has always fallen in a range of one to two basis points per annum throughout monetary regimes throughout different political regimes whether it's a democracy or a monarchy like the French monarchy over centuries, the, the Holy Roman Empire, they all saw this trend fall starting at least in, in the early 16th century uh, after the famous bullion famine that gripped the entire world. Um, and, and after the Italian wars, one of the biggest conflicts and long lasting conflicts in the early modern period started. Um, that has also not just big implications for the whole secular stagnation debate, but also for the first set of literature that I mentioned. It means we can, we can statistically look at this new time series and the new evidence of our centuries. We can confirm statistically, okay, it's a downward monotonic downward trend over time, but it's also not a random walk, okay? The interest rate is not a random walk, which is the um, consensus view in, in the finance literature um, for some time. Uh, in fact, uh, the global real rate is uh, something that, that these st statisticians would call stationary. Um, in other words, it has a predictable component over time. Um, so if you're an investor and if, if you had access to that time series in the 16th or 17th century, you could have predicted that the global economy and markets would discuss and grapple with the zero lower bound in the early 21st century. You could already have predicted. That's the, the stationary component, the predictable component that is downward trending over time. So these are two or three um, um, elephants in the room that I try to, to take out or at least question from, from a long run financial uh, historian's perspective. And um, that's, that's the motivation behind it.
Uh, I love that. And and it's um I mean it's a super interesting finding, right? And and it's also, you know, it begs the question, you know, why is like what is this structural force underneath the economy that's pushing, you know, interest rates down over time in such a consistent manner? And you know, why is like the the why question is always overdetermined. But have you thought about it at all like why this is the case? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, this uh this immediately comes to mind and um there's not one conversation where where people um uh, squeeze me on that uh, i try to start answering this question in a negative way in the sense that i try to go through all the usual suspects that are being invoked at the moment in the context of the secular stagnation debate in the context of the of the current um, finance literature, which basically tries to um, to to highlight three factors. One is a potential productivity story. Uh, in other words, the whole Robert Gordon uh, argument that we run out of ideas, uh, we are no longer as as productive, we are no longer uh, picked all the low hanging fruit. It's reinventing just much the wheel. Now. Exactly. Um, we we're no longer making the kind of um, gray matter uh, uh, leaps that we did in the first wave of industrial revolution second wave so that one is easy to rule out um, because as i mentioned actually the output um, picture of the long run is pretty good um, so you can take my new data on interest rates and compare it or set it against uh, angus medicine's data on gdp and on productivity right or on uh, against uh, Steve Broadberry's series for England, for instance, when you take my English series, it turns out that not just are interest rates and GDP uh, growth not strongly correlated over time, which a lot of asset pricing models assume. No, in fact, they're going in opposite directions over the very long run. So. The growth series um, can be thought of if you look at, at, at the, the works out there, it's basically a hockey stick trajectory over time, right? So for a long time, it hovers around um, $300, $400 per capita in real terms in 1990 um, up until the point where the industrial revolution starts and we, we see a sharp acceleration. However, at the time of the industrial revolution global real rates have already come down uh, substantially by a big amount i mentioned it starts in the early 16th century so for for about 300 years global real rates are already consistently falling when the industrial revolution takes off so that's that's why i first uh question this whole productivity story um that that is supposed to to lie behind the the downward trend uh, since the 1980s no i don't think it's a productivity story um uh, i think that even if um growth sharply accelerates again if we make another big um ict a big big uh, general purpose technology invention like the internet like something else that doesn't necessarily mean that we get a trend break in global real rates and they start uh, going up again structurally. I don't think so. Uh, history tells you that actually there's, there are long sustained periods where they go in completely opposite directions. And that might be, you know, um, 
that might call for a lot of um, revisiting of these asset pricing models and, 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 and market people would always assume that there should be a positive correlation between these two variables, um, which might still be true for the short term for business cycle. Okay, if we look at quarter to quarter revisions of GDP growth, it's, it's still very much plausible that the real rate should go up. Uh, okay, but I'm talking about the structural, the more glacial uh, trends in the economy. So second, uh, second explanation, demographic factors. Uh, maybe some of your listeners have seen the, um, the new book by Charles Goodhart and, and other people have invoked demographics. The idea being that if people live longer, if life expectancies go up, they have to save more for retirement increasingly. Okay. And uh, they invest, invest this money typically in fixed income because uh, this is a long-term asset. Okay. With predictable returns. Okay. Less risk than equities or other asset classes makes, makes sense from the outset. Right. The problem is that uh, we have reasonably good data on life expectancies over time as well. Um, uh, demographic historians, other people have written books about this. Uh, we have good time series. And adv advanced economy life expectancies hover around 40 years until the 19th century or so. Okay, so uh, guys like us, I guess, have a couple of more years and then we would be expected <laughs> to either go into retirement or, or um, you know, we... Um, uh, we pass basically. Okay? Um, so within a century, in the 19th century, uh, advanced economy life expectancies go from from 40 to something like 70. Okay, it's the biggest leap in demographic variables ever seen. Um, but again, if you remember what I just said, real interest rates start declining in the 16th century rather than the 19th century okay way before it so which means the big in inflections in life expectancy don't really cut it either in my view we should have seen a massive uh, break in global real rates in the 19th century when that happens when the demographic revolution happens not in the data not we don't we don't see that okay so that's why i'm very skeptical about the um, Charles Goodhart's arguments as well, and the whole demographic channel. Um, it's it's not really it's not really there, which leaves which leaves a couple of other factors which I think are more promising. And I should also say from the outset that it's not a sovereign risk story in the sense that, of course, a lot of your listeners will immediately say the first thing they they will say is that. Of course, these kind of issuers, these governments in the 15th or 16th century, of course, they are so much more risky to, to lend to as an investor. I would charge, it's natural that I would charge a much higher risk premium, of course, okay, to, to hedge myself against the risk of, look, we have all these examples where the creditors of the French king, if they are too insistent on repayment, <laughs> They end up in the French Tower, or they end right. up in the Bastille, and they wish they hadn't really, uh, you know, bugged them so for, much, yeah, for their money back. Um, so, uh, uh, absolutely, uh, of course, the um, um, governments per se are 
today are safer, okay, in terms of the default risk than they were in the 14th and 15th century. But um, it's not a default premium story either over the long run, okay, because risk, sovereign risk is relative. We can isolate the safest economy over time and we see the same downward trend over time in the safe issuers who never uh, threw their creditors in jail, who never um, resorted to big debasement operations, which is the classical default event in the early modern period. So you simply you simply reduce the gold content of your Got coins it. by 50% or so. And then you tell your creditors, well, here you have my new currency. Look, it says the same. It's the same... Uh, 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 nominal amount okay it's just uh, 50 percent less gold in in these right. coins okay so that's how how governments did it for a long time they didn't even have to default on the principal okay they re they repaid the the nominal amount in the principal just um uh with a very different currency okay so we we have knowledge of these events we can trace them we can we can reasonably relate these to real interest rates and we don't see that um, so even the even the countries that never uh, had debasement shocks debasement defaults um, even these countries sort of show the same properties and secondly I touched upon it earlier we see that trend in other assets as well so not just sovereign assets we actually see the downward trend in private rates as well oh, wow. so I'm showing one series in the paper on private mortgage rates in real terms over time yeah and uh, with good reasons you can argue private households in the 14th 15th 16th century are actually safer to lend to than governments okay you you can you can make that argument it's a fair point uh, however we are seeing the same trend in private real mortgage rates long maturity mortgage rates voluntary market rates over very long periods of time, we get one and a half basis points per annum. Okay, and the the asset the asset is highly comparable to a mortgage that you take out nowadays. Okay, a thirty year fixed mortgage or so. Okay, same properties. Um, you have you have uh, collateral. You need to put up collateral. You need to um, you know it's 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 tradable in the secondary market. Uh, it's um, typically secured by the underlying real estate uh, to some extent, okay, and your personal income, and um, and um, it's um, heritable, okay. So your descendants um, still have to pay it uh, if you're on the on the uh, debtor side, and uh, if you're on the creditor side, you 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 receive you re still receive the payments um, if the if you're if you're if the other party dies or just runs away or so, you have good legal protection, in other words. So, which, um, uh, in my view, uh, leaves two very promising uh, factors here. One is uh, a time preference channel that is at work. And one is a more general um, uh, capital longevity story which are both important which i think there might well be more to it than these two explanations uh, and i very much think there's more to it there is a bigger factor here that we still and that i still don't fully understand okay 
that I um, I've, I've you you can imagine I've I've read for years now. I try to I try to figure it out. Talk to to many many people who've spent their lives thinking about long run trends. Um, there's still a big question mark over over all this. Okay, maybe something happened in the 16th century. Um, for which all evidence, all the documents, everything has been <laughs> destroyed. And there's a big mystery that we will never uncover in that sense. Okay. We we cannot, unfortunately, we cannot go back to the early 16th century and interview contemporaries or, or so. Um, it's a big challenge in that sense. Something happened in the 16th century, which we, in a very fundamental sense, still don't understand, I think. So, but two things are... Uh, evident one um you have to remember that that capital markets over time are basically a um a story of of top one percent top five percent people investing and and taking money out etc dynamics that's true nowadays that's true in the 15th century as well so in other words the the top 10 percent wealth share in the 15th century is around 50-60% comparable actually to levels today, okay? It's not dramatically different, which means that 50-60% of your fixed income assets around there are subject to the dynamics in that particular social and economic group, okay? And this is what we should focus on, okay? If there's any big institutional factor that only affects these uh, people in a but in a big way then this might be much much more important for capital markets than one big event that affects everybody in other words something like the french revolution okay um and that's actually the case i think so what happened in the late 15th century was for instance that the feud the feud was outlawed oh wow <laughs> right 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 <laughs> Yeah, there's a big movie. Uh, it, Ridley Scott just you know talked about this recently, like, right? You know, like yeah, exactly. So, so for um, in 1495, the feud is outlawed in Germany. Okay, uh, what does this mean in the in an economic sense? We can see the effect in a dramatic reduction of uh, personal violence. Okay, oh, so basically for, for two centuries, it's perfectly legal and actually expected <laughs> that if your neighbor insults you in, in any shape or form, <laughs> or he doesn't repay uh, some sort of personal loan that you give him, or, you know, he, um, I don't know, he, he insults your daughter or, or whatever have you, it's perfectly normal and expected that you gather a few friends of yours uh, you 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 assemble some horses, and you raid his his properties. You put his you put his uh, castle on fire, and uh, excuse me, and um, and you destroy his property as as uh, comprehensively as possible, and you kill him as well right. in, the, in the end. When the feud is outlawed, we see a sharp drop in top 10%, top 5% um, violent deaths, okay? Oh, wow. So even though society-wide life expectancy doesn't change um, and population growth doesn't change, for this particular group who is active on financial markets all the time, 
life becomes so much more, much more secure, stable. stable. Exactly. Oh, wow. Exactly. And so, what does it mean? Uh, it means that um, if you don't have to fear uh, being stabbed or or killed uh, on the street uh, every every other day by by your neighbor or by someone else. Um, your investment style changes in very different ways, um, in very fundamental ways. You're much, much more likely to take out a 30-year a mortgage or, a, or lend uh, money to your king or to your duke for 30 years because you're, you're much more confident that you live when the contract ends and, and you, can, you can receive the principal back, Okay. This is what what economists have called a time preference uh, before. Okay, right. so time preference. How patient are you in the end? Okay, so what it what it means is that suddenly people are becoming much much more patient in financial markets. Yeah. Um, so these inflection points in patience um, line up very well with what we are seeing on the real interest rate series, um, and it and it would. Um, um, I think be a very plausible, plausible explanation, at least part of the story, a very plausible part of the story, which we don't get from a lot of these other factors, a lot of these other channels are thrown around for years now in, in the secular stagnation debate. Patience is increasing and it starts in the 16th century that people are becoming more patient in financial markets. The um, I can go on <laughs> for for hours basically until you interrupt me. Will um, no, th th this is great. This is great. I mean, th that's such an interesting um, thing to think about. Is like you know, humanity, especially the, it sounds like you know the elite section of society has gotten more patient over time because their lives have become somewhat more stable, pretty steadily. Correct. The um, the one big uh, inflection point. Um, in recent times, in terms of patience and in top 10% is World War One, actually. Um, why? Because uh, a lot of historians, including um, David Canadine, for instance, for for Britain, who, who wrote a uh, seminal book on the decline and fall of the British aristocracy, um, they always point to World War One as the last stand of the uh, of the old elite, basically in 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 the world. Okay, so in no other conflict since um, since the the Italian wars in the 16th century, basically, did such a great number of top five percent, top ten percent investors die suddenly on the battlefield than oh, wow. World War One. Uh, and we see it in the the violent death series that I mentioned for 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 financial market participants. Basically, one more time, one last time, it surges during 1914 to 1918 in in ways that that nobody would have expected, um, because a lot of this, uh, um, you know, top 10 percent people. For one reason or another, for cultural reasons, for for reasons of of pride and honor, uh, call it what you will, they go to France, they go to the to the uh, front, uh, and they die uh, in the trenches. Actually, um, it's a huge, huge number. Uh, it's not just the common soldier. If you actually look at the figures, um, it's the biggest um, 
violent death event for for the European elite in centuries, World War One. Wow. Um, so that's this is another inflection point actually that aligns very very nicely with the real interest rate series. The big statistical break in the interest rate series over time, over centuries since the Renaissance, are the year 1510 and the year 1912. And these are also, it happens, the two big violent death events um, in advanced economies for centuries. So I think this channel is one of the most promising that I'm looking at. Gotcha, gotcha. And did you have one more other than the patients? People getting more patient over time? Yeah, the other one is um, um, what I call the capital longevity story. Um, in other words, the capital, uh, the interest rate is a function of capital demand and supply, obviously. And if your capital stock grows faster than um, the demand for, or, or the the, um, uh, so if the existing supply rises faster than than the demand to take out new uh, investment projects, new loans for whatever reason, uh, then obviously we should expect the interest rate to fall. Now, why would this happen in a structural sense, in a, in a long run sense? It happens because of uh, uh, the fact that our capital stock is becoming more advanced, more um, durable. So goods, so uh, Simon Kuznets, the famous uh, US economist, um, once wrote a fascinating article about the early modern economy. And he quipped basically uh, and said, there's no such thing as permanent durable capital in the early modern economy, except for cathedrals. Everything else, so basically a bridge in the early modern economy, an infrastructure fixed asset collapses within two years, basically. Gotcha. Okay? Given its 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 technological features, etc. Your average house, your average hut, uh, as I mentioned, is burned down by some sort of radar or mercenary, typically within a short period of time, or just collapses in the same fashion because it's made out of mud or or primitive stones or whatever. There is a slow but steady process where the capital stock is becoming more and more and more durable and and gotcha. long long um, living now contrast that um, that bridge or that hut with things you see today um, i mean for for every european who flies into jfk um, which is a big fixed infrastructure asset JFK Airport in New York, um, it often feels like time travel for a European, you know, going back to, it's like going back to the 1960s or 70s, right. uh, the way it looks like. Yeah. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that it's a, it's a big fixed capital item, which can last and live for 60, 70 years without any issues at all, without any, anybody wondering about this. So capital is becoming more and more durable. Um, which means which means you do not i mean it depreciates of course capital depreciates you have to reinvest you have to um keep your runway in shape in the in the case of jfk but it's a different story to having to reinvest and rebuild the entire capital stock time and time again okay and of course the other big factor is um 
simply wars uh, that that destroy big portions of the capital stock all the time in the early modern economy. Okay, so um, say during the Thirty Years' War, the Thirty Years' War is perhaps the uh, the greatest capital destruction event that we've ever seen. Um, and in in one of my chapters of the dissertation, I tried to to estimate um, the capital destruction from some of these big wars in the early modern period and and compare it to say World War One, World War Two, um, because I'm, I was interested if it if it is a plausible explanation for what's happening on the on the asset pricing side right on in, in capital markets so during the uh, 30 years war uh, around a quarter of the capital stock in germany is uh, completely wiped out um, okay Jeez. um and the 30 years war of course is only one war event of a very very frequent very very uh, violent um, uh, early modern period. Now, um, what we are seeing since 1945, the fact that we did not have a war between advanced economies invading each other for a period of 80 years now almost in advanced economies, it's unprecedented in, in long-run economic history in um, um, in financial markets, okay. Right. So, I the other day I tried to to actually I tried hard to find a previous period where we had such a long long time where where two countries, advanced economies of the day, did not fight each other and destroy each others. And the the most recent period that I could find was. Um, uh, the aftermath of the war of Saint Sabas in the year 1256, uh, which was a, a war involving ago. Genoa and um, and other Italian city states. After that war, we had another 75 year period um, where the leading economies did not fight each other. Um, in other words, these past 80 years were remarkable for the fact that we could build up. A, a capital stock um, that was not down. subject exactly to to destruction, to uh, bombings, to to all sorts of of, of um, um, capital structure dynamics, which were perfectly normal uh, and and going on all the time uh, historically. Okay, uh, that's the other. That's what I mean with with uh, capital longevity, which is the other. Um, but but. Not to confuse people, these these wars that I'm talking about, I talked about the violent death uh, channel, the right. patients, the Thirty Years' War, all these other wars, they are fought not by the top ten percent, not by the top five percent, by but mainly by people who do not buy and, and sell assets uh, themselves gotcha. because they don't have savings in the 17th century, just like they are more unlikely to have savings nowadays in, in big in big numbers. So these are two, I'm just saying, these are two separate channels, okay? One, the, the capital destruction channel, and one, the, the um, patience channel, which is more a function of the actual group of people who invest in, in markets all the time. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. No, I, I really love that. And it, it, it almost echoes, um, you know, Stephen Pinker's better angels of our nature, you know, like if the world's getting less violent over time, you know, maybe we see that reflected in real interest rates over time, which is quite right. interesting. Um, and uh, Walter Scheidel has, has written something about, about capital destruction events uh, as well, of course, but none of them have, have tried to make the link to asset markets and really to, to, to what we're seeing uh, since the 1980s, of course, and, and thought about in more comprehensive ways uh, what it means for asset pricing per se in a, in a fundamental way. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very, very, very interesting. I want to shift a little bit um, for our last couple of minutes and talk about, you know, banking crises. crises. Um, so you said, you know, you were working with the ECB uh, 2008. So you got to see these things kind of firsthand and, and how everything unfolded. Um, it, what's your sense? Have policymakers gotten better at dealing with banking crises over time? You know, I, I, I like to read Scott Sumner. Scott's got this idea that, you know, we could have prevented the 2008 financial crisis, um, but we didn't, you know, the Federal Reserve didn't for whatever reason, you know, could have been bureaucratic reasons, not clear exactly why. Um, yeah, what's your thought on that? Have we gotten better over time at dealing with these? Um. Well, that's a great question, uh, which allows me to advertise uh, my, my latest project here at Yale with uh, Andrew Metric. Um, what we did over the last two years was build a new database um, which covers banking crisis interventions uh, since the year 1257, um, up until 2019. The idea being we wanted to catalog and analyze every single intervention that public authorities or other private uh, market participants made in the banking sector to relieve some sort of stress event, to address some sort of uh, malfunction in the, in the banking sector over time, uh, based on 20 different intervention categories, um, and then study the longer run trends in responses to bank stress, banking crisis, okay? With the exact intention, you know, um, can we learn something about how the secular response to these stress events changes? Are we getting any better or are we getting worse? Or do we have to do more and more and more intervening uh, in the financial sector because it's, it, it's malfunctioning in ever greater ways, yeah? Um, and so that, that database is publicly accessible um, and everybody can study it. But our takeaway um, for one is that interventions are in fact becoming more and more and more frequent, um, okay? And they have to become larger and larger in size uh, as, as a share of GDP, um, certainly. So, um, we have to spend more and more and more money to address problems in the banking sector, to, to try and alleviate stress and, um, and um, prevent systemic events from happening, basically. Now, that simple fact suggests that, uh, I mean, the counterfactual is, uh, would, it, would, it, uh, would it be even worse had we done nothing in, in you know, the last uh, decades or so? But one way or another, at least it's not falling, uh, that, that right. measure. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's a disturbing finding, I would say. 
it does not suggest that the problem is um, is fading, that we are getting better at. No, uh, we might be getting better in a relative sense compared to doing nothing, but we still have to spend more and more and more money uh, trying to fix the banking sector. And that's not a good thing, uh, certainly for society. Uh, that means that the problems are are continue to accumulate in the banking sector, in the financial sector, and that we have to um, uh, spend more and more resources trying to fix whatever is, is uh, going wrong there. So in that sense, no, uh, we have not um, uh, gotten better in that sense. So we, we show the exact numbers here. So we are saying basically that the average intervention size in the economy goes from something like 2% of GDP in a typical intervention. Gotcha. So in the, in the mid, in the mid 20th century, the typical intervention size is something like 2% of GDP. If you include emergency liquidity, capital injections, um, debt guarantees. Okay. If you, if you focus on, on these, these three categories alone, which are the most important interventions, the average intervention is 2% of GDP. Nowadays, post 08, your average intervention is 4x that number. Oh, Jesus. I.e. 8% of GDP. Um, so our average, our average um, budget style uh, emergency response nowadays is 8% of GDP. Uh, to try and fix something in the banking sector. Um, and that's a disturbing finding that, that that number increases so sharply and so dramatically. It's not just uh, advanced economies. It includes emerging markets. We find the same trend there. It's across the world, um, whether you're high income or low income, um, whether you are highly regulated or low regulated. It's true for almost every country in the world. And it does suggested something um, uh, is still fundamentally wrong uh, and and continues to to um, deteriorate in a, in a bigger way uh, and this certainly started before 08 okay um, it's a longer run trend that we are seeing and maybe ultimately it is a phenomenon that might be connected to the fall in interest rates um, because uh, it's a phenomenon of bubbles okay and we know that when um, interest rates are low the probability of financial bubbles increases okay so i mean that's that's a fascinating question for a future paper of course but i would venture that there might be an interesting link actually between these two two questions that you brought up gotcha so it's something that maybe interest rates you know as they trend lower people try to you know invest in riskier assets to get returned exactly. and then something exactly. like that so why do we have the rise of bitcoin for instance partly and it might be a, a perfectly rational response to the fact that you earn zero uh, on a 10-year german bund or or um or a japanese government bond so you want to 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 search for alternative investments for for new assets that uh fill that function that government bonds played in the past, okay? And um, I'm not saying that, that Bitcoin is necessarily a bubble or, or that, it, that it's not 
quite quite rational. I'm just saying, um, from financial markets, from the banking sector, um, our intervention um, metric over time is also a bubble metric over time. Okay, it's it's a proxy for for bubble dynamics in the financial sector, and it overlaps pretty nicely with the trends in asset pricing that, that I talked about for the first half uh, of this podcast. Okay. So gotcha. lower rates, higher bubble frequency. Makes sense. Makes sense. Very, very interesting. Um, well, Paul, I, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I learned a ton with you today. I, I really appreciate it. Um, where can we send people? Where can people find your work? Um, you, you can find me, um, I'm, I'm not super active on, on Twitter and these, these social media channels, but, but, um, uh, I might, maybe I'm, I, I become more active in the future, but you can, you can find links to my webpage there. Uh, or if you search for my name, I, I posted my, some of my latest research you find on my website, which is, which is publicly accessible. If you just search for my name, um, or if you go on Twitter and follow me there, you can see the link. And um, uh, otherwise, people will have to wait for the book release uh, with Yale University Press, which um, will hopefully happen sometime next year, late next year, um, depending on on um, the supply shortages in paper, uh, I guess. Right. <laughs> I love that. Um, I love that. Um, but yeah, that's that's the easiest way to um, to look for details and, and read more. Excellent. Well, um, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll get those links in the show notes. No, Will, thanks so much for the invitation. And, and this was a pleasure to, to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives 